Welcome to Upstream Downstream, a lively civil discussion devoted to the political, policy, and cultural topics that often divide us. Upstream Downstream is presented by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communication at Shepherd University in cooperation with WSHC-FM and the Listen, Learn, Engage initiative. And now for this week's discussion. Welcome to Upstream Downstream. I'm Bianca Eisen. Joining us today is Elizabeth Goitin. She is the co-director for the Brennan Center for Justice, Liberty, and National Security Program and a nationally recognized expert on presidential emergency powers, government surveillance, and government secrecy. She has made appearances on MSNBC, CNN, and NPR, and has testified before the State and House Judiciary Committees. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Government surveillance programs are nothing new. The United States Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISC, having been established back in the 1970s. But things have changed drastically following September 11, 2001. How have our laws surrounding surveillance evolved since then? Sure, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, it's something I spent a lot of time thinking about. Uh, what we've seen over the past couple of decades is actually two trends that have combined to uh, vastly increase the government's spying power. And the first is advances in technology that have made it easier in all kinds of ways for the government to collect highly sensitive information about Americans. And then at the same time, the second uh, uh, phenomenon is just changes in the law, as you mentioned, after 9-11, that have removed privacy protections and lowered the bar for the government to conduct domestic surveillance. Um, and I would say that the result is predictable. We're seeing more and more incidents of surveillance targeted against Americans because of their race, religion, or political beliefs. Um, and there's zero evidence that any of this has made us safer. In fact, if anything, the evidence points in the other direction. So that's a, that's a sort of overview. But then more specifically on your question, to understand the post-9-11 changes in the law, you actually have to go back further in time to, to the early decades of the Cold War, when there were very few legal limits on domestic surveillance. And government agencies took full advantage of this to, to spy on racial justice advocates, Martin Luther King Jr. being probably the most notable example, uh, as well as anti-war protesters or uh, people supporting other left-leaning causes. And there was a climate of fear during this time. There really was. Americans were afraid to really express their views because they were worried, rightly, about the potential for harassment or persecution by the government. After the Church Committee brought these abuses to light in the 1970s, Congress uh, and government agencies themselves enacted a whole range of laws and policies to rein in government surveillance. And these laws and policies shared a common feature, uh, which I like to think of as kind of a golden rule of surveillance. Namely, law enforcement and intelligence agencies could not collect Americans' personal information unless they had individualized, fact-based suspicion that the target of collection was engaged in criminal activity or, or was serving as an agent of a foreign power. And the level of suspicion that the government needed could depend on the context and on the sensitivity of the information, but there could be no suspicionless surveillance. I would say that this, that this rule served us pretty well for a quarter century. Um, and it's important to, to point out here that while the 9-11 Commission certainly found fault with a lot of government practices, it never suggested that the government needed to collect more information about Americans with less 
reason for suspicion. Nonetheless, after 9-11, there was a race to get rid of privacy protections and enhance the government's ability to conduct surveillance. And the golden rule that I talked about before was systematically stripped out of laws and policies. There are several examples I'd be happy to get into if you'd like, but in general, uh, this rule was replaced either by nothing. In other words, the government was able to engage in certain collection practices just as long as it had an authorized purpose, which means it wasn't trying to do something illegal, or, or by a standard of relevance, which is an incredibly low legal standard, really the lowest legal standard in the law, and it doesn't require much of anything. And that's, that's what we saw happen after 9-11. One of the things that also came from 9-11 was that Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, for those who are listening, and it was particularly Section 702 of this act that the goal was to focus on foreign individuals who potentially posed a threat to national security. So how is it that Americans are now getting caught in this process as they're collecting data? That's a great question, and that's one of the major changes that happened after 9-11, Basically, the Bush administration began to conduct surveillance between foreigners overseas and Americans without getting any sort of warrant or individual court order, uh, which at the time was required by FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So under FISA, if the government acting inside the United States wanted to collect information uh, between a foreigner and, Amer- and an American, it had to go to the FISA court and show probable cause that the target of surveillance, whether the target was the foreigner or the American, uh, was either a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power. And the agent of a foreign power designation, when it involves an American, is pretty much uh, an assertion of criminal activity. It applies to spies. It applies to people who are, who are otherwise engaged in, in illegal activity on behalf of a foreign power. And so this was very much like a criminal warrant that the government had to obtain before conducting surveillance that involved Americans. After 9-11, second, well, after, after the Bush administration's warrantless wiretapping program came to light, and some of us at the time were very much hoping that Congress would be serious, that the administration had simply ignored FISA and had, had gone off and done this, um, what happened was the opposite, that Congress ratified um, the government's actions by passing Section 702. Section 702 allows the government to collect any and all of the communications of a foreigner overseas, including their communications with Americans, without any kind of individualized order, let alone a warrant. All that the FISA court does is approve the general procedures for this surveillance. And the target of the surveillance um, can be pretty much any foreigner overseas. It doesn't have to be somebody who is suspected of terrorism or, or otherwise being a threat to the United States. So this vastly opened the door to surveillance that picked up massive amounts of Americans' communications with, with foreigners overseas. Now, Congress did specify in the law um, that any, that the collection of Americans' information in the course of surveilling these foreign targets was supposed to be incidental, uh, not the purpose of the surveillance. The target was supposed to be the foreigner overseas, and therefore Congress provided that the government had to minimize the retention and use of any of this incidentally collected information about Americans. Again, what happened was pretty much the opposite. For example, the FBI 
routinely searches through the communications that have been obtained through Section 702 to find both phone calls, emails, text messages of Americans in purely domestic investigations the FBI is conducting that have nothing to do with national security. So this has really become a rich source of warrantless access to Americans' communications. You mentioned that the government surveillance has essentially led to a, an incidental increase in Americans' information being collected and the FBI searching through that information for their own benefit. Can you talk to me about backdoor searches and how these circumvent our constitutional right? So as I was saying, the reason that uh, this collection was authorized by Congress and the reason that it is considered to be lawful under the Fourth Amendment, although there's a question mark there, uh, is because it's the foreigner who is supposedly the target of the surveillance. And foreigners overseas under Supreme Court case law um, do not have Fourth Amendment rights that our government has to recognize. And so if the government wants to collect the information of a foreigner overseas, it can do it without a warrant. The question arises, what happens when the, the when that person is in communication with an American who does have Fourth Amendment rights in their communications with foreigner, foreigners overseas? And really, in order to render that kind of warrantless surveillance of international communications constitutional, you need to have this minimization provision. You need to ensure that Americans are not actually the target of the surveillance, even though the government has sworn or certified that, that the foreigner is the target. But when the FBI is allowed to, you know, go into to the FISA court and certify that its interest is in the foreign target, not in the American, and then as soon as the data is collected, is allowed to search through that data using Americans' identifying information specifically for the purpose of finding Americans' information, that really looks like warrantless surveillance is being used to collect or to access Americans' information. And that raises enormous Fourth Amendment questions. This is why it's called the backdoor search loophole, because it's a way of getting around the warrant requirement. If the government from the outset had said, we're collecting communications between this foreigner and this and this American, and we're actually interested in the American side of this and what they're saying and doing, they would have to get a warrant. So to just wait and do it after the fact, after the collection has occurred, doesn't really improve the situation. So what steps are being taken or need to be taken to ensure the protection of our Fourth Amendment rights and protect us from backdoor searches? Well, what really needs to happen, the main thing, is that Congress should pass legislation requiring the government, any government agency that wants to search and use this data, to obtain a warrant before searching for Americans' information. And I'm using Americans as a shorthand for not just American citizens, but people who reside in this country, who are protected by the Fourth Amendment. Um, Congress uh, did enact a very limited warrant requirement for a small proportion of cases, but we have learned since then that the government has never once complied with this requirement, even though there have been, at, at a minimum, dozens, probably hundreds, if not more, of instances in which the government has performed these backdoor searches in situations where it should have gotten a warrant. It has simply ignored that requirement and not actually obtained a warrant. So I think because there are some cases, most cases, in which it doesn't have to get a warrant, it's easier 
for the government to ignore the warrant requirement in cases where it's supposed to get it. I think Congress needs to pass a blanket warrant requirement whenever the government performs a search for Americans' information of this warrantlessly acquired data. It must first get a warrant. Um, and that needs to be, it needs to be enacted and it needs to be enforced. So that's really the, the most important change. So we've talked a little about the changes in law. One of the other trends that you had mentioned is the advances in our technology. And we are living in an increasingly digital age. People of every race, age, and creed are on social media, are using search engines. How does this rise in technology, how does this affect the information that the government collects on us? It's important in a few different ways. First, just the amount of information that we are putting out there into the world. Uh, just dwarf anything um, that that we produced in the past. You cannot go 24 hours today without leaving a trail of of digital breadcrumbs of data, um, and you know the, the the even just the volume of communication. Most of us send multiple text messages every day. It is not the case that people used to write multiple letters every day. It's not the case that people could make free phone calls across the country, and so. Phone calls across the country, long-distance calls were rare. Just the sheer amount of information and communications that Americans put out there into the world is, is, is much greater than it was before. That information is often held by third parties, such as Internet service providers or cell phone companies. And that is very significant because until quite recently, the Supreme Court had essentially said that you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy, which means you don't have Fourth Amendment rights, in information that you voluntarily share with another person or another entity. And this was called the third-party doctrine. It is called the third-party doctrine. And while the doctrine might make some sense if you make information, voluntarily make information public to everyone, um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when this is information that you are, for example, that your internet service provider stores about your web browsing records or your internet search records, which you expect to be private. You are not trying to put that information out there into the world, let alone hand it over to the FBI or the NSA. Uh, you do have an expectation of privacy, and I would say a reasonable one, um, in those kinds of records, but until quite recently, the Supreme Court did not acknowledge that. Um, there was a decision in 2018 in which the Supreme Court recognized a Fourth Amendment interest in a particular type of third-party record, and that is geolocation information that is held by, by cell phone companies, essentially. Um, and that was a watershed moment because that was the Supreme Court saying the third-party doctrine is not absolute. And there are cases in which the government still needs a warrant to try to get this information. However, that case, for now, applies only to that subset of records. And there are so many other third-party records that contain incredibly sensitive and personal information about us that is unfortunately uh, fairly readily available to the government, certainly without a warrant. And the final way in which I think technology is significant is that the data that we put out there can be crunched by sophisticated computer algorithms in ways that reveal highly sensitive information, even if the information on its face seems pretty innocuous. And really, geolocation uh, information is an example, because you wouldn't necessarily think that 
where you are physically at any moment in time could be that revealing. But if you accumulate that information and you run it through, again, very sophisticated analysis, it can be, the information can be teased out of that data, uh, including information about your associations, your, um, your beliefs even can be revealed by that kind of information. And so that far more sophisticated analysis that can be conducted today with the help of, of technology has really changed the game quite a bit. You're listening to Upstream Downstream, sponsored by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communications and the Listen, Learn, Engage initiative at Shepherd University. We are joined today by Elizabeth Goitin, the co-director for the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program and expert on presidential emergency powers, government surveillance, and government secrecy. We are discussing how government surveillance has changed since 9-11. So, Elizabeth, since 9-11, we've had both Democrat and Republican presidents with respective majorities. Has there been any trend that you've noticed with regards to how the laws surrounding government surveillance have developed during these power shifts? Unfortunately, no. Well, I would like to think that civil liberties is something that presidents of both parties would be committed to, frankly. And I think what is surprising and disturbing is that administrations of both parties have embraced this um, expansion in the ability to conduct surveillance and uh, surveillance of Americans with less and less basis for suspicion. And some of the trends that we have seen in terms of Surveillance being targeted against people because of their race or their religion or their political beliefs. Some of that, we have seen that across administrations. Under the Obama administration, the Department of Homeland Security was tracking the social media posts of Black Lives Matter protesters. It was tracking their protest activities. So this is something that we, we have really seen across, across administrations. I will say, though... That while it doesn't necessarily uh, seem to be uh, an issue of, of liberal versus conservative in, in any meaningful way, um, that cuts both ways. It means that the executive branch tends to be in favor of um, expanding surveillance authorities, uh, whether the, it's a Democratic president or a Republican one. But similarly, in Congress, there is a bipartisan move. There has been a bipartisan move over the last few years to reform surveillance laws to bolster privacy protections. Um, that really has been, and in the beginning it was, I would say, members on the far left and on the far right, but it's increasingly getting, moving more and more towards the center um, so that you have large uh, um, sections of both the Democratic and Republican parties in Congress who support surveillance reform and support um, rolling back some of these expansions, expansions in surveillance law. So there, there is really a reason for, for hope there. Some of the more controversial provisions of the Patriot Act that survived through other acts had expired originally back in March 2020. They tried to bring it back in May, but Congress was still at odds with each other. And so now it's sitting waiting for differences to be resolved. Right. What That, that is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would the necessary reforms look like? I would say that leaving these authorities expired um, is exactly the thing to do because the authorities in questions are ones that essentially got rid of the golden rule that made it easier for the government to spy on Americans. And in particular, if you look at Section 15 of the Patriot Act, um, 
before Section 215 was passed, the government could obtain certain types of business records as long as it could come before the FISA court and show that the subject of those records was a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power, which, as I mentioned before, sort of implies criminal activity when you're talking about an American. And so that was a requirement of individualized, fact-based suspicion. Uh, and after 215 was passed, uh, what, what Section 215 did was, first of all, expand what the government could obtain from certain business records to any tangible thing, literally anything could be obtained by the government. And it, the government did not have to show that the subject of the surveillance was uh, a, a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power. Instead, the government only had to show that the uh, information or whatever the tangible thing that it was seeking was relevant to a foreign intelligence or counterterrorism investigation. And as I mentioned before, the relevance standard is the lowest standard there is in the law. It does not require any finding that the subject of the collection was engaged in criminal activity. And to give you an example of how capacious this relevance concept is, uh, after Section 215 was passed, uh, the government engaged in a program of collecting American phone records in bulk. This was uh, done by the National Security Agency. It was the NSA's infamous bulk collection program where it collected American telephone records showing who they had called or what numbers they had called, what numbers had called them, at what times and how long they had spoken. And again, this is a type of information that can be, um, that you can apply sophisticated computer algorithms to determine some very sensitive things from that, from that information. Um, at the time, uh, well, originally the government did started this program without any sort of approval from the FISA court, but eventually the government went to the FISA court to get approval under Section 215. And what the government argued was that all of us, all of our communications are relevant to ongoing authorized investigations into terrorism because even though most of us have nothing to do with terrorism, let alone these particular investigations, there would be some relevant information buried within all the irrelevant information. And the only way to get at it was to collect everything. And the FISA court absolutely bought into this reading of the term relevance and authorized the collection. So that tells you right there, the relevant standard is not going to prohibit um, collection of information about perfectly law-abiding innocent Americans. As you said, both parties, when in power, have essentially pushed for more control for government surveillance. Now, even with Obama keeping an eye on the Black Lives Matter movement, Biden had previously mentioned during that time that he didn't support collecting metadata. He thought it was a breach of privacy. But as he is now our current president, has he pushed for any legislation in favor of more ethical surveillance, or has he been largely silent on the issue? He's been largely silent on the issue. I would love to see him take the lead on surveillance reform. Given everything else on his plate, I am not surprised that the administration isn't taking the lead on this. What I would hope to see is the administration supporting members of Congress who, who try to move forward with surveillance reform. And so, really, I think at this point, it is up to Congress to, to start making these changes. And then certainly, it, will, it would be my, I would say, expectations, and I'm a little too cynical, 
um, I, I believe that the, the Biden administration absolutely should support uh, reforms that Congress is considering. I'll give you an example. There's a bipartisan bill right now that is called the Fourth Amendment is Not for Sale Act that would close a very dangerous loophole in our in our current privacy laws. Um, the, and the laws in question relate to the privacy of communications records, and that includes the communications metadata that you were speaking about. The Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which dates all the way back to 1986 and has not been meaningfully updated since then. So we are talking about a law that was enacted basically before most of us even knew what the Internet was. That law prohibits certain companies, phone companies and Internet companies, from, I mean, the way they define who it covers would apply to Internet companies, even though the Internet didn't really exist at the time. That prohibits those companies from disclosing communications metadata to government agencies without a subpoena or some kind of legal process. Now, the standard for the government to get that data, I would argue, is too low, but at least there is some restriction on voluntarily sharing that information uh, with government agencies. However, it puts no limits on the ability of these companies to share information with other entities, with private entities outside the government, or, or at least very few limits. And it also, the companies it applies to do not include app developers because app developers did not exist in 1986. And so what you see are these gaps in the law whereby, first of all, app developers can collect certain kinds of metadata such as geolocation information and it's free. They are free to give that information to government agencies. But even more insidiously, any of these companies can sell their information to third-party data brokers. Again, a concept that really didn't mean much back in 1986, but now it is a booming industry. And these third-party data brokers can turn around and sell that information to government agencies at a profit. And we've been seeing this. We There have been a number of, it's not that it's made public, it's not that the government does this transparently, transparently and out in the open, but investigative reporters have found that federal agencies have been purchasing American personal sensitive information, including information the government would need a warrant in order to compel a company to turn over. So including, for example, cell site location information, for which they need a warrant under Supreme Court precedent. But they're going ahead and buying this information with no warrant, no reason for suspicion, in massive quantities from third-party data brokers. Um, and this is just a massive problem. It is an end run around not just the Electronic Communications Protection Act, but around the Fourth Amendment. And there is a bill. The Fourth Amendment is not for sale act. It's a bipartisan bill. The, the lead uh, sponsor of the bill is Senator Wyden. Um, that would prohibit this practice. It would re- prohibit the government from buying this kind of personal information from from any company. So that's an example of a, of a bipartisan bill that should move forward and that the Biden administration absolutely should support. We have just about a minute left, Elizabeth. Do you have any final thoughts on what Americans should be aware of with regards to government surveillance and our privacy? Well, one of the things I would point out, two things. <laughs> Let me start by saying that I, I think it's important to understand that um, privacy protections in these laws, they are not just a civil liberties protection, they are civil rights protections. And when government officials don't have to point to evidence of wrongdoing, it is much easier 
for them to fall back on conscious or subconscious biases, whether racial, religious, ideological, or what have you. And that is very much what we have seen since 9-11. So, so this, is, this is a civil rights issue, and I, w- I want to flag that. But the other thing I would say is that, first of all, there is reason for hope at the federal level, because this is a bipartisan issue, and I would urge people to get in touch with their members in Congress and say this is a priority for them, and say they want their uh, representatives in Congress to support the Fourth Amendment is Not For Sale Act and other surveillance reform legislation. And I would also say that um, there is a lot of activism going on at the local level. Um, we've seen city councils and state legislatures enacting laws regarding facial recognition technology, putting limits on or banning facial recognition technology, drone surveillance, limits on drone surveillance, laws and ordinances that require greater transparency when the government adopts new surveillance technologies. Um, there's really a, a sort of burgeoning interest in these issues at the state and local level, and it is a real opportunity for people to get involved within their own communities in um, putting some limits on government surveillance of their communities. Unfortunately, that brings us to the end of our time together. I'd like to thank our guest, Elizabeth Goitin, for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's been great having you on the show. It was my pleasure. I'd also like to thank our producer, Sarah Burke, and our acting director, Greg Fields. Thank you all so much for listening. Until next week, I'm Bianca Eisen. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Upstream Downstream, presented by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communications at Shepherd University. To learn more about the Stubblefield Institute, other programs such as the Listen, Learn, Engage initiative or the American Conversation series, or to become a friend of the Institute, please go online to stubblefieldinstitute.org.